This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Today's 21st Century Coast Guard operates in a complex and ever-changing environment. Increasing demands across the maritime domain require near-term agility while strategically investing finite resources for tomorrow. As a unique force with both military and civil authorities, the U.S. Coast Guard and its missions touch nearly every facet of the nation's expansive maritime domain. The U.S. Coast Guard, its people, and assets are essential to national security and economic prosperity. For over 226 years, history has proven the U.S. Coast Guard responsive, capable, agile, and most of all, faithful to its motto, Semper Paratus, always ready. What is the U.S. Coast Guard's strategic direction? How is the U.S. Coast Guard modernizing to be ready for today and prepared for tomorrow? We will explore these questions and so much more with a very special guest, Admiral Paul Zekoft, 25th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Admiral, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Don, welcome. Thank you. Admiral, before we delve into specific initiatives, perhaps you could provide us with a, a brief overview of the rich history and mission of the United States Coast Guard as one of the oldest U.S. government agencies. How has it evolved into a critical component of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? This year, we'll uh, celebrate our 226th year of service. This is a special year because it's our 100th year in aviation. But if you, if you go back to 1790, uh, at that point, Alexander Hamilton, the father of the Coast Guard, said if we had 10 revenue cutters uh, judiciously stationed you know, at our ports, it was a point in time where we were bankrupt uh, following the Revolutionary War. And they were really there for customs duty and smuggling. Uh, Fast forward 226 years, well, we still have issues with customs, port security, smuggling, now it's drugs, uh, and and the Coast Guard has grown and evolved to where we have just ships alone named cutters over 244 ships versus 10. So we've come a long way in the last 226 years. You know, with such a critical mission, it's interesting that the Coast Guard, most folks really probably don't realize you have a dual military and law enforcement status. Uh, Could you elaborate a little bit on that scope, the multi-mission scope, and how is Coast Guard organized, the size of its budget, and um, give us a sense of the geographical footprint. We're we're a force of uh, 88,000 strong, uh, but that includes 32,000 all-volunteer Coast Guard auxiliarists. Um, But first and foremost, we're a military service under Title 10. I sit with the the chairman and the Joint Chiefs of Staff on all deliberations when it comes to warfighting and military personnel. Uh, we're also a law enforcement authority. Uh, we're a member of the national intelligence community. We're a humanitarian service when it comes to safety of life at sea. Most people are familiar with our search and rescue missions. We're a regulator. 
we regulate maritime commerce, we safeguard maritime commerce, and we maintain the waterways that, that move. 95% of global commerce moves by sea. So the Coast Guard has a key role in all of those areas as well. I'd like to transition to your specific role. Would you tell us more about your duties and responsibilities as Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard? How do you support the overall mission of the uh, Department of Homeland Security? And Don, it comes in a number of flavors. Uh, first, I'm the service chief for, for, the, for the Coast Guard. Within the Department of Homeland Security, we're the largest component within the Department of Homeland Security. But it's imperative that as a military and as a law enforcement and as a humanitarian service, that we are in lockstep with the Department of Homeland Security and their quadrennial Homeland Security Review, that our missions resonate with the department's missions. Uh, I'm also the chairman of the interdiction committee within the Office of National Drug Control Policy uh, as I lead the interdiction efforts on a global scale. And so if you look at where the Coast Guard is, we're actually on all seven continents at given times of the year. This is the one time of the year we're not in Antarctica. Uh, we just pulled out of there, but we'll be back down there uh, early winter. So we are now a globalized Coast Guard with a broad suite of authorities that go with that. So, Admiral, I think you're probably hitting, hitting your two-year tenure uh, time frame. So I, I wonder, in that time that you've been leading the Coast Guard, what are your top, say, three challenges that you faced, and, and how have you sought to address those challenges? Uh, prior, our biggest challenge was just getting uh, the number of overseers to understand the Coast Guard. We would often describe ourselves by our 11 statutory authorities that translate to missions. And if you start rattling off uh, 11 statutory missions, by the time you get to number four or five, uh, an overseer will say, well, it's clear you just have too many missions. So we reframed the narrative. Uh, we looked at we have broad authorities in the Arctic at a point in time where we're seeing unprecedented human activity in the Arctic region. Uh, we've seen between unaccompanied minors, drug flows in the Western Hemisphere, the Coast Guard has over 40 counter-drug bilateral agreements with all of the transit source zone nations and Central South America, Caribbean island nations. So we're very relevant there as well. When we saw energy spike, and now it's come back the other way, but the Coast Guard has a key role uh, in regulating that commerce, safeguarding that commerce, and the event of an oil spill, responding to those acts as well. All of our authorities resonate there as well. And then with cyber, we kicked out a cyber strategy, and that is everything from preventing acts of terrorism by defending your cyber domain, uh, using cyber offensively, and then we also work with the maritime industry so they can protect their cyber interests as well. So we rolled out four strategies in the last two years, one on Arctic, another Western Hemisphere, one on energy, another on cyber, and then we just finished the most important one is how are you going to manage your human capital in the 21st century as well. Uh, none of these strategies really existed in our previous 225 years. Along with the challenges you've encountered, what surprised you the most during your tenure at the Coast Guard? Probably what surprised me the most was just the, I wouldn't say appreciation, but the, the lack of knowledge about our broad scope of authorities uh, that exists, not just here in Washington, D.C., but even at the local level as well. At a point in time where it's all about communications in any relationship. So if you're going to have a relationship, be it at the local level or here in the capital, it all begins with communications. Um, so the first thing we did is, you know, we need to be out there in social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, and so when key events happen, people follow. Uh, we landed uh, 32 metric tons of cocaine on one of our brand new national security cutters last August, a, a volume that is almost beyond imagination, but, but worth probably two of those ships uh, in terms of the value of the cocaine removed. 
in one deployment with this one national security cutter, uh, that translated to over 27 million hits in social media. It's free advertising, but people didn't realize the Coast Guard is doing that. Uh, the other surprise would probably be the variances, and it's really not a big surprise, but you know, how do we get beyond these pendulum swings in our annual appropriations? which directly impinge upon our ability to renew the Coast Guard. Uh, we knew our fleet was getting old, so that was no surprise to me. The surprise was some of the initial resistance that we faced in justifying why we need to modernize the fleet. Uh, so I would say the first two years have been a bit of a honeymoon. This, this year, we, we saw the largest appropriation uh, delivered to the Coast Guard in the history of the Coast Guard. A very pleasant surprise, which allows us to modernize without having to draw down our force structure. So uh, a number of pleasant surprises uh, as I look back in the last two years. So, sir, um, I'd like to get a better understanding of your leadership style. Um, what are the characteristics of an effective leader? Uh, what core leadership lessons would you like to share with us? And more importantly, who's influenced your leadership style? Well, it probably goes back to, you know, my earliest days as a commissioned officer. But, you know, my leadership style – in you can put all of this in policy statements and words and so forth, but it's to be a, a humble and approachable leader. Uh, when I came in, I was told that ensigns are to be seen and not heard. Uh, and, and so even though you might have the best idea as an ensign, uh, it had no value because you're just an ensign. I realized that you know, the smartest person in the Coast Guard does not sit behind my desk. But that person will be pretty smart if he reaches out to the innovators within our organization and brings those folks and their great ideas and bring them to the forefront because everybody wants to be valued in this organization. The leader I always look up to is uh, one of our former commandants, uh, Admiral Jim Malloy. Um, you know, he was our commandant during 9-11. He became the first TSA administrator and he also became the deputy secretary of Homeland Security as that department was just being stood up. But he was a commandant who really led from the deck plates. People always came first in everything that, that he did. And so when I look at why do you modernize new ships, it's not because I want shiny new ships. It's because we're putting you know, our most valuable asset, our people, in very old ships. And we're asking them to carry out our missions and, and oftentimes very unforgiving conditions. And I owe it to those folks you know, to make sure that they have the best tools at their disposal to be able to carry out our missions. But more importantly, if things are broken, mm -hmm. uh, I always tell people, you have three no's as a commanding officer. I write letters to every commanding officer and officer in charge, 370 some odd people every year, and said, if nothing else, know when, you know, know your people, mm -hmm. know your mission, and more importantly, know when to say no. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if the weather conditions are unfavorable, if your ship people are not qualified to do the mission, it's okay to say no. I have your back on that. What is the strategic direction for the U.S. Coast Guard? We will ask Admiral Paul Zeekopt, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. 
Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Admiral Paul Zeekamp, 25th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Admiral, the Coast Guard is defined by its missions, its people, and its tradition. As Commandant, you've outlined a strategic direction for the Coast Guard that honors these elements and fosters its motto, Semper Paratus, always ready. Would you give us an overview of your Commandant's direction and the guiding principles that frame this direction? Well, it's very simplistic. Uh, There's three key tenets to it. Uh, And the first thing we did before – I rolled this out the first day I took over as Commandant, by the way. But before we did, uh, we farmed it out to our junior most enlisted people um, and said, hey, do you understand this? And the first thing they said, well, where's the part of, you know, we're going to reorganize the entire Coast Guard? Where's the part where we're going to take the Coast Guard in a, in a direction that we've never gone in before? Because what it really uh, speaks to our people, uh, this is about consistency and about predictability. And so the first part is about service to nation. Part of that is a fundamental principle of, you know, we serve our nation before we serve ourselves and wherever we're called to serve. Uh, but then you start breaking it down where, you know, talk about intelligence will drive our operations mm-hmm. because in the past we would just do a lot of activity, mm-hmm. not informed activity and maybe not the best use of our resources. So uh, intelligence driving operations means we're going to do more activity, more operations, in fact, that have measurable outcomes in, in some areas at the expense of doing less in others. Mm-hmm. An example is in the counter-drug mission. Uh, we have more planes, more ships doing that mission than probably we've ever had before. Is that because we have more ships and planes? No, we have the same number we had three years ago, but we're doing less things elsewhere Mm -hmm. because this is where the greatest threat is to the United States as validated by the national intelligence community. Uh, We want to make sure we're aligned with the Department of Homeland Security. And initially when DHS rolled out its first QHSR, it was really hard to find the Coast Guard in there. And that is not a good place to be if you are not aligned with your with the third largest department in federal government. So that's service to nation. Uh, the second tenet is about duty to people. The first part of that is, you know, we need to get sexual assault out of our service. And this is all about, you know, we have victims uh, that feel betrayed that a member of the Coast Guard violated their trust through this aberrant activity. We're making great progress. Our number of reports are way down, recognizing not everyone reports. We're moving in the right direction, but we still had 218 reports in the last year. We lose uh, about 50% different subject on duty to people. We're losing about 50% of our women 10 years into their service in the Coast Guard. Uh, at a point in time where we're the most diverse our Coast Guard Academy has ever been. Uh, diversity and inclusiveness is a big part of duty to people. Uh, so today, the class of 2018 and 19 are about 40% women, 33% underrepresented minorities, uh, moving in a good direction there, but we still have more work to do on retention. When I ask people, you know, what causes you to leave the Coast Guard? And sometimes it's the frequent moves, the dual careers, raising a family, and you can't do all of those things and have a military career. Uh, so we're minimizing the number of moves people make. If you're in an area where there are a lot of Coast Guard installations, it's quite possible you could do five, six assignments in that same geographic area over a period of 10, 15 years and never have to move your family. That's a good thing. It's common sense. It's good for our family. It's good for readiness. And it saves us a lot of money. Uh, The third tenet is about committing to excellence. 
Gone are the days where we could be a Swiss army knife, a jack of all trades, master of some. You know, you do not do you know, neurosurgery with a Swiss army knife. But when I look at the work we're doing in Intel and cyber, our marine inspection programs, very technical in nature. And you can't just have journeymen doing this type of work. You've got to grow the specialties to be able to excel in those areas. And the other is we need to demonstrate to the government that we are a good steward of public dollars. Um, a key part of that is assuring that we can open our books and, and provide a clean financial audit opinion. And we've done so three consecutive years now, the only military service that can make that statement. That's a good statement to make. So, uh, sir, could you give us a sense of your strategic intent as a follow-up and some of your key strategic priorities that ensure that the Coast Guard is ready for today but prepared more for tomorrow? So when we put our strategic intent together, it's much like the the QDR, the Quadrennial Defense Review. It is first taking a, a fix on what is the external environment. And let's face it, tranquility is not exactly breaking out across the world. But I start looking at, so what equities does the Coast Guard have against Daesh? They, they have not moved into the maritime realm. And so that is very much as I look at the Navy missions, the maritime missions, probably not a big role for the Coast Guard when we look at terrorism, um, especially in the Mideast. Uh, when we look at Russia um, and what's happening in the Ukraine, is there a lot of Coast Guard equity there? It, it's really a, a land-based operation. So we went through all of that and started looking at our, our four big strategies. The Arctic, uh, we have a cruise ship that will ply those waters this year, the Crystal Serenity. Uh, at a point in time where I have a C-130 in Greenland today doing the International Ice Patrol since the sinking of the Titanic back in 1912. So what if we have a cruise ship that sinks in the Arctic? We better be ready for that. We're seeing the growth of COCA with the peace accords, with the FARC still in deliberation. Um, but, but COCA production, COCA con cocaine consumption is up. Drug deaths are up in this country. Uh, and that trend is not moving in the right direction as well. So equally relevant there. Over 60,000 offshore oil workers were, were laid off as oil prices came down. Will they remain depressed over a long period of time? Clearly not. But as they recover, who goes back out and who does that work? And is it inexperienced work crews that, that may lead to another deep water horizon type event when we look at the energy sector? The Panama Canal is opening. Uh, it will, well, it hasn't opened yet. It was supposed to open on April 1st. But when it does, it might change some of the trade routes. And where do we need to be repositioned if we're going to see increases in, in volume in some ports, less in others as well? Uh, and then the other cyber, that is going to continue to evolve. And we need to make sure we're shooting ahead of that target and not behind based on the most recent you know, intrusion, if you will, when it comes to cyber. So all of those external factors, uh, not to mention a change in administration, you know, what new policies might we look to? You know, what is our policy going forward with Cuba? Uh, and a number of others. That's the external environment. And then where do our Coast Guard authorities? We have 61 international treaties from drugs to fish to weapons of mass destruction. You know, where does the Coast Guard best fit in that 21st century world? Which in part justifies why you need to recapitalize. But the key part in all of that is how do you manage talent in the 21st century as well? We've never used the word talent management. And I actually spent time in Silicon Valley earlier this year to understand their human resource capital strategy. You know, how do they manage talent in a world and under Moore's law that, that changes literally overnight, where what you may know today will be obsolete two years from now. So how do we stay in touch with that? So as we looked at that, uh, we would always have 
fiscal policy drive our strategies and say, you're, you're going to have this much money. What do you want to do with it? Mm-hmm. The purpose of the strategic intent is to understand the external environment, what it will take to answer all of those calls. And if you don't get all the funding, then how do you manage risk across the competing challenges that we see in the 21st century? So a little bit different approach yeah. of how we've, uh, we would always have budget driving strategy. How do we have strategy drive budget instead? You recognize the Western Hemisphere as a primary operating area for the Coast Guard. I'd like to explore a little um, your, your Western Hemisphere strategy. What are the key elements of the strategy? What are you specifically doing to disrupt the maritime traffic and activities of transnational criminal networks? Perhaps you can also highlight some of the successes in this area. I know you have a few. Sure, Don. Uh, maybe I'll start with my role as the chairman of the Interdiction Committee. Uh, I've since uh, I've made uh, two trips. Uh, what I brought are a number of principles from Department of Defense, Department of State, Department of Justice, uh, DEA, uh, among others, to visit with uh, each of the presidents in Central America, to meet with the senior leadership in Colombia, to see firsthand the challenges that, that they are seeing. So I recall meeting with President Saron in El Salvador last November. There's a lot of gang violence uh, taking place there right now. But the reason you see unaccompanied minors arriving at our southwest border is they are fleeing from crime-ridden countries. The most violent countries in the world are right here in our backyard. Not widely appreciated, but that is the fact of the matter. It was no different when I met with uh, President Hernandez in uh, Honduras. Uh, And I said, what does he attribute all the violent crime to? At that point, Honduras was the number one crime-ridden country in the world, worse than Iraq at the height of the insurgency. And he said, well, we lose the battle when drugs come ashore. And and the way drugs are shipped in bulk, they typically land in Central America, at which point they're broken down to retail size. Law enforcement, elected officials, a lot of corruption comes with this. Rule of law goes out the window. Violent crime goes up. But he said, if you can stop those drugs from landing, you know, it gives our security environment, an opportunity to recover and ultimately rebuild our economic base and build trust in foreign investments so people will invest. Because right now, it's, it's not only the most crime-ridden countries, uh, you're looking at 40% unemployment, uh, 50% poverty, poverty being defined at $2 per day earnings. And so where are those countries going to be in the next 15, 20 years if we elect to do nothing? And so do, a do-nothing approach really doesn't resonate, but we often looked at drug flow strictly of how many bales, how many tons of cocaine did you remove? And we never addressed it from a regional stability and what is the social cost to include the social cost here in the United States where you know, drug deaths have exceeded highway fatalities now for, for several years running. But it is a, a multi-billion dollar industry. And then we look at the conversions of drug flow and is that aiding and abetting trans, uh, other such as terrorist activity as well. And we keep a close eye on that. So Western Hemisphere focused a lot on that. It's focused on illegal migration. Right now we're, we're off to a, a record year of number of Cuban migrants that we've apprehended trying to make the crossing. The good news is very few, if, if any, loss of life. But we're seeing much more desperate acts uh, by using our our wet foot, dry foot policy, do whatever it takes to get into the United States. And if we apprehend a boat, uh, we've had several uh, migrants shoot themselves. Uh, The gun disappears, but we have to medevac them to a U.S. hospital. Some will cut themselves. We had one swallow bleach, um, and and they'll go to those levels of desperation. 
So we started looking at, well, you know, what is the policy in Cuba? If people are that desperate to come to the United States, we can infer that Cuba is still not a country that abides by human rights accords. Um, this will be a challenge. So it's a challenge there. But if we do nothing in the rest of Central America, all the drivers are now set into motion for those countries to continue to be pulls to this country for illegal migration as well. So all of that is wrapped up into our Western Hemisphere strategy. So, Admiral, what are you doing uh, to enhance the southern maritime border security? It really comes down to uh, intelligence um, and working across the interagency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and within DHS, it's within our Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, Customs and Border Protection, and Coast Guard have really been the triad for the Department of Homeland Security from investigative work, surveillance, and ultimately interdiction. We work hand in glove with the Joint Interagency Task Force South. And then under Secretary Johnson, we've uh, created three task forces, um, a joint task force east, west, and one exclusively for investigations. East looks at maritime. Joint Task Force West looks at our, our southwest border, our, our port land ports of entry, and investigations looks for not the mules, if you will, but the, the organizers, the kingpins of human trafficking, drug trafficking, because many times the people we interdict are the third tier. How do we back that person up to the second tier, and then how do we back that up to uproot the organizers of this illicit activity? So this is the first time where you've seen the Department of Homeland Security, in the absence of Goldwater Nichols, really have a unified approach dealing with some of the threats on our south border, maritime and land. The, the pr- prosperity of this country is inextricably linked to a safe and efficient maritime transportation system, which demands robust safety and security regimes. I think just as your brothers and sisters in TSA and CBP are seeing increased passenger traffic right now, you're seeing a great deal of increased uh, maritime commerce. What's being done to address some of these increasing maritime commerce concerns? Uh, Again, this is not something the Coast Guard can do on its own, and it really resonates with our authorities that we have uh, at the captain of the port level, you know, at our 37 sectors that we have throughout the Coast Guard. Uh, What's, you know, consistent across all of these uh, sectors is that we have what we call an area uh, maritime security committee that brings in private public sector uh, addressing maritime threats uh, and then addressing uh, what I would say incremental security measures in the presence of a, an imminent threat. If I go back to 9-11, uh, we were doing activity everywhere. We created this term called sea marshals mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, to replicate the air marshal program. But we were doing it in, the, in, a, in an intelligence vacuum where there were no really known threats. Uh, working with CBP, we have a national targeting center that looks at every ship arrival, you know, from passenger to cargo manifest, screening that cargo, where was it loaded, where was it shipped, who are the crew members, where we can use a threat-based approach of does a vessel pose a potential threat to the United States. Uh, We have a program where we send audit teams out and we audit every port uh, with whom the United States does maritime trade. Uh, There are several that are not in compliance with the International Port Security Code, and so if a ship calls on a non-compliant port within five times of calling on a port in the United States, they will be subjected to a rather rigorous port security inspection regime. The shippers want to avoid that because time is money. And so what it does is they will avoid those ports that are non-compliant. 
which then forces those ports to become compliant without any regulatory arm, but it's really driven by global trade. Um, and so it's really been probably a best practice of how do we incentivize other ports to be compliant with what are international standards uh, that we have adopted under the Maritime Transportation Security Act, but they're consistent with global regulations as well. So, Admiral, what's the current um, Coast Guard position in the Arctic, and what are some of the challenges you face in that area? And perhaps this is an opportunity to maybe go over your Arctic strategy. Uh, well, obviously, the biggest challenge has been, the, you know, just, just a matter of capacity. Uh, you know, our nation has one heavy icebreaker that is about 40 years old. Mm-hmm. For this year and next, we chair the Arctic Forum, led by the 24th Commandant, my predecessor, uh, Admiral Bob Papp, who is our envoy to the Arctic Council. Last fall, we created for the first time uh, an Arctic Coast Guard Forum. Working through the Department of State, uh, I was allowed to bring my counterpart at the four-star level to uh, New London, Connecticut, where we signed the, the first statement to create what is a Coast Guard Forum. Russia, as you know, has 41 icebreakers. We have one medium and one heavy icebreaker in our nation's inventory, and a GDP nearly nine times that of Russia. We often say, well, we can't afford it. Well, we had not made it a priority. We do have a mark in our 17 budget that gets us out of the starting blocks, you know, to start recapitalizing this capability. You have to ask yourself, well, do we want the Arctic to be, you know, the the next battlefield, or do we want the Arctic to really focus on the amount of human activity, whether it's oil exploration, fisheries, safety of life at sea, protecting the way of life of the indigenous tribes, and actually protecting that pristine environment. Those are all worthy issues that all eight Arctic Council nations are in violent and agreement. Well, these are the areas that we need to be focused upon. And the fact that you can have regular and deliberate conversations with all eight nations and walk away from, you know, let's not start building offensive capabilities in the Arctic. Let's really focus on areas that we can come together and agree upon. At a point in time where, you know, we look at Russia with a wary eye right now, uh, especially with the leadership that's in place in Russia. But at least this is one area where we can all come to the table and discuss these most relevant issues as it pertains to the Arctic. How is the U.S. Coast Guard recapitalizing its critical assets and infrastructure? We will ask Admiral Paul Zekopt, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What are the strategic priorities of the USDA's Food and Inspection Service? How is FSIS ensuring this country's food is safe and uncontaminated? How is FSIS leveraging technology and innovation to meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and much more with Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Admiral Paul Zekompt. 25th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Admiral, given the age and condition of the U.S. Coast Guard's legacy assets, future mission success relies on completing the planned recapitalization of Coast Guard boats, cutters, aircraft, systems, and infrastructure. Would you discuss the importance of asset recapitalization and capacity building for the U.S. Coast Guard? What challenges are you facing in this area? 
Yeah. Uh, first, our, our surprise was the 16 budget. The 17, the jury is still out on that one. Uh, we're, we're doing the marks on it. Uh, yeah, we had built out our uh, program of record of eight national security cutters. Uh, and, and quite honestly, when I was stationed in D.C. in 2010, uh, we weren't certain if we were going to get a fifth or even a sixth national security cutter. This, uh, our 16 appropriation awarded a ninth national security cutter. So we went from eight to nine. Uh, we're building out very capable uh, patrol boats. We call these fast response cutters, commanded by a lieutenant. It's the best lieutenant job any in any military service. These are awesome platforms. Uh, and so we have the appropriation. We'll build out 58 of these. What will really define the Coast Guard going forward in the maritime realm is going to be the offshore patrol cutter. Uh, we have three contractors vying for that final bid, and we will down-select it probably in the August time frame of this year, which will launch the largest acquisition in Coast Guard history. The program of record for that would build out 25 offshore patrol cutters at a point in time where our 210-foot medium endurance cutters are approaching their 50th year of service. And by the time that first offshore patrol cutter is delivered, some of those ships will actually be approaching 55 years of service. Will they serve for that long? Clearly, if they're not safe to sail, we, we may have to take them out of commission. Uh, and then finally, the real big piece in all of this is the you know, recapitalization of our icebreaker fleet. Our 17 budget does have a $150 million set aside to at least get into the design work. And we've already reached out to industry, uh, and they are keenly interested in building heavy icebreakers here in the United States, which we have not done in over 40 years. Mm -hmm. Are you doing anything to accelerate the acquisition? For the icebreakers, we are. Uh, we've already com completed the requirements document, which normally would, you know, that process, believe it or not, takes uh, a year and a half to two years because there's at least seven other agencies within the federal government that have equity in the Arctic, Interior, Defense, National Science Foundation, Arctic Research Council, and the list goes on to include Coast Guard. So we're going to build an icebreaker. You know, you want to make sure if you're building this more than a minivan, that it has all the features in it that will appeal to the needs of, of all those who have Arctic equity. So we've done that, and that's already cleared. Uh, we're reaching out to several countries that, that have designs on the table for heavy icebreakers. And if we can accelerate the design work for that by taking a parent craft design, uh, that will buy us several years as well. So, so a lot of that outreach has already been done. Uh, we held an industry day about six weeks ago. We had nearly 300 people show up, including from the international community, knowing that there's $150 million in the 17 budget request. When we had $3 million in that account and we reached out to industry, we literally had three people that expressed any interest just to see if we were serious enough, mm -hmm. serious or not. And at that point, they said, well, you're not serious. There's not real money here. Mm -hmm. So there's clearly an appetite. And this is important within our industrial base as well, that we have the ability to demonstrate that we can produce this type of a ship, which we have not produced in over, in over 40 years. So we know, we know the Coast Guard is dedicated to strategically investing and being fiscally accountable while sustaining mission success. You talked earlier about being proud about the, um, the clean financial audit. Can you tell us a little bit more about your financial management system improvement initiative? Yeah, Don, the biggest challenge we have right now is we have uh, a number of ledgers that we have to maintain, and they're all being maintained manually. So if I were to ask my chief financial officer how much money is in the checking account today, he can probably, you know, maybe by the end of July tell me what's in the checking account. 
Uh, and we want to make sure that we're spending down, that we don't find ourselves in, in, in violation of, uh, of the Deficit Act. And so typically at the end of any fiscal year, we, we always leave a little bit of a cushion. Now, the good news is it's usually less than 1%. But the fact of the matter is that we do not have centrally total visibility of our ledgers because they're disaggregated. And so we need to pull all of that together uh, using a program of record under what we call our Financial Management System 2, which is a program that has been uh, by the uh, Department of Agriculture, I believe it is, um, but using a, a parent design tailoring it to the needs of the Coast Guard so we can have near real-time visibility of, quite honestly, what's in the checkbook so we can have a repeatable process of how can we assure open book a clean financial audit opinion. So while techn- technological advancements in maritime shipping and industries have improved safety, vulnerabilities in the cyber domain are creating new risks. Would you tell us more about these new cyber threats? More importantly, what are you doing to address the cyber risks? Perhaps you can highlight some of the key strategies that compose your cyber risk strategy. Yeah, um, yeah, We rolled out our uh, cyber strategy about a year and a half ago. And the first pillar on that is uh, defending our cyber networks. And so after the uh, OPM compromise, uh, we stood up a, a crisis action team of over 80 people. Now, the first challenge is, who are your cyber experts within your enterprise? Because we have not created a program of record. But we have more than 80 people that know what cyber is. They work in our information technology world. But we brought them in and then try to penetrate all of the applications that we have as a potential adversary to find out what vulnerabilities we had in the Coast Guard. And we found a number of them. And so we've corrected those. Some of it is antiquated operating systems. So it's going to take real money to correct those as well. Um, So that was one element of cyber is being able to protect what you have. The other is how do you use cyber offensively? You can think in terms of search and rescue. Uh, We use cyber to take the search out of rescue. Actually, it's as simple as someone has a distress beacon, they're in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific, and we know where they're at. It goes to a satellite, it comes down, but that's all cyber-enabled. But we also use cyber to go after counter-drug activity. The reason we doubled down in the drug transit zones was you know, a little over two years ago, we actually had at least one source of intelligence. Some of it might have been through the cyber domain, might have been human intelligence, but we're about 85% of the flow was on any given day out in the ocean. But we can only target maybe at best 15% of that 85%, which means 70% are getting a free pass. Mm-hmm. So it was probably back in November, we had six GoFast loaded with drugs over an expanse of the equivalent of North and Central America. Six boats, each about 30 feet in length. And we were able to put an airplane on top of, and then an armed helicopter on top of, and then a ship next to all six of those, and we were able to get all six of these. The other is, you know, as we look at our regulatory authorities, how do we protect our maritime transportation system from cyber intrusions as well? One of the biggest vulnerabilities are internal, what we call a violation of cyber hygiene. We've had several mobile offshore drilling units uh, in the last several years that that drove off the site that they were drilling in deep water. Malware had gotten into their main control console. Uh, We don't know how it got there, but it caused that main control console to lose communication with the thrusters, uh, and so it literally drove off the well site. Fortunately, the blowout preventer kicked in, and we didn't have another deep water horizon. Cost the industry millions of dollars. You know, as you look at lease rates for a mobile offshore drilling unit, you've got to go back and reestablish that well site. Time is money, 
So industry is very incentivized right now on, on how do they harden their cyber defenses as well. But looking to the Coast Guard, looking to the National Institute of Standards and Technology of what are the best practices for cyber. And just because you might have the best practices today, this is going to be an ever-evolving threat. So it may change one day to the next as well. But we're doing a lot of outreach right now with the maritime industry on cyber awareness and then what standards might they implement to harden their defenses. So, Admiral, when I was uh, preparing for this interview, I read your State of the Coast Guard address, and I, I really appreciated the uh, the line you had about hearkening back to the lessons of the Royal Navy. You can't surge experience and leadership. You have to grow it from bottom up. So to that end, could you elaborate on your human capital strategy? And more particularly, what are you doing to retain and attract a leadership pipeline for the future? Right now, I mean, our, our retention rates are the highest among any of the armed services. Now, part of that, we place a premium on our mid mid to senior enlisted pay grades. Uh, you know, I don't need a brigade of, of privates. You know, I need you know, more experienced petty officers in the Coast Guard. But this comes at a point in time where we have the best educated enlisted workforce in Coast Guard history. I sponsored a, a company at Cape May where our recruits go through basic training. And out of that company of 90, 40 of them had bachelor's degrees. And out of that 40 with bachelor's degrees, uh, 18 of them had master's degrees to be an E2 in the United States Coast Guard. So you've got this best educated workforce. Uh, you've got a baby boomer generation as myself uh, getting ready to time out. Uh, the average age of our civilian workforce is 51 years old. Where are you going to find that talent? At a point in time where maybe 25% of the youth between 17 and 24 meet the bare minimum requirements to serve in the United States military. And I'm not going for that 20 to 25 percentile. I'm going for the, you know, the upper tier. Um, and so, so there could be recruiting challenges. Uh, there could be enticements by the high-tech sector, uh, airline industry, maritime industry to draw talent away from the Coast Guard. And the talent that they'll draw from will be at that middle tier of the Coast Guard, the most critical part of the Coast Guard. Throw on top of that blended retirement, which will kick in in 2018, that will, won't provide the same incentives um, as we have under our current retirement policy for folks to at least serve 20 years. Um, because I really need that, that 12 to 16-year mark. But quite honestly, today, if someone has 12 years of service in the Coast Guard, they're going to do 20. Um, I don't have that insurance, so it's the unknown of what's out there. So we need to make sure that we're in front of that. So a big part of that is, you know, what is it that incentivizes people to stay in the Coast Guard? We'll actually start looking at instruments, tools, to try to assess somebody's commitment. I know that the IT industry uses that right now to gauge whether someone is just looking for the next highest bidder and they don't have that full commitment to that particular organization because I cannot get in a bidding war, can't pay those type of incentives. But it's important that and right now we have people that are directly connected to the mission regardless of what they do in the organization. It's like the NASA model. Yes. When you told the janitor, yeah, what yeah. do you do? I am putting a man on the moon. Right. Uh, and you could ask anyone in the Coast Guard, indirectly or directly, I'm going to save a life. I'm going to improve our economy. I'm going to keep drugs off the street. You name it. So we need to make sure that we always have that connective tissue to what we do and we do it with our workforce as well. Um, but if we turn a blind eye to this, uh, we can find ourselves with a hole in the organization where you can't surge experience and you certainly can't surge leadership. So you talk about the uh, managing talent in the 21st century and the new skills that are going to be required. So – 
obviously the, the complexity and diversity of the Coast Guard's mission sets require a range of analytical techniques and approaches to manage them effectively. This is one of the new new needs that you're going to have in this new new workforce. What are you all doing to increase the use of analytics and enhancing the analytical capabilities of your organization right now? We're uh, we're looking at uh, right now. We look at education experience that people have, but we've always uh, we, we've put that on the uh, shoulders of our assignment officers, and all they're looking for is a body to fill a billet. And maybe it's not the ideal fit. And so we've gone different ways. We've looked at needs of the member, needs of the service, but through our analytics. So if we've made the training investment, um, it, it works pretty straightforward in our aviation community. If we send you off and you become an aircraft commander, well, we're not going to send you off now and, and learn how to drive a ship. You, know, you are going to work in the aviation industry. Within our marine inspection program, though, we've had a lot of leaks in that program. We'll send folks to a, a lot of training. And then right when you want to get a return on that investment, uh, that individual will say, well, I want to go off and do something completely different in the Coast Guard. They cut a deal with their assignment officer. And even though you know, they might be that, that round peg in a square hole, we do that. But we bleed down you know, the capability of that program. And we actually you know, we lose some public trust with the maritime industry when they never see us get beyond the journeyman level of an industry that we regulate. And so we need to make sure that, that we are one step ahead of and not lagging behind the industry that we regulate. It's no different in intelligence. When we first rolled out the national security cutter, one of our number one causes of casualties were not mechanical failures, it was human failure. Non-familiarity with the systems that we were operating. When you leave uh, one of those ships today, you, know, you get preferred assignments and most people would prefer not to go to sea again. Uh, so we're going to have to fix that model as well. And we're already looking at, well, how do we incentivize sea duty, especially on the larger ships, and pay them uh, a larger sea duty premium than we would someone going to a smaller ship. But as you're building more complex systems, as we recapitalize, we need to make sure that we're making the same investments and we're leveraging the talents of our people most effectively. And so that's a big part of the analytics. But it really applies across acquisition, across legal air, land, and sea, pretty much everything that we do. And speaking about what you do, Admiral, I'd like to get your perspective about um, major emergency responses. You, you mentioned earlier Deepwater Horizon. Um, you got Katrina, the Haitian earthquake. What lessons from your perspective have been learned and applied to other emergency efforts that you've responded to? I always know that you're dealing with a complex catastrophe when the Kennedy School of Government shows up in the middle of your response because you're the next case study. So I was the federal on-scene coordinator uh, for the Deepwater Horizon oil spill. And, and right at the height of that, uh, you know, uh, here is Dutch Leonard and Lenny Marcus, the, the two gurus behind the, the Kennedy School of Government. You are now a case study. Um, but if you look at, you know, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill, uh, just prior to that, we had the Haiti earthquake. Uh, and there was political unrest. Uh, you've got a cholera outbreak. And quite honestly, all the seeds uh, germinating for a potential mass migration. Now you have the worst oil spill in U.S. history compounded by the fact that it's now during hurricane season. So if you can imagine Katrina and the tidal surge, but now that tidal surge has oil on the top of it. And You've got midterm elections taking place. And what if you have a terrorist threat thrown on top of that? And what if the Cascadia subduction zone in the Pacific Northwest decides that that's the day it's going to release? And the reason I mention that, because that's where we pulled 
a lot of our initial responders from an area that hasn't been impacted to where it is to be able to bolster up our numbers. Well, you may not have that luxury going into the future. Uh, we've been fortunate when you had Katrina, when you had Deepwater Horizon, those were one events. But what if you compound that with another one and we become a Coast Guard that you know is out of Schlitz, that, that can't answer to more than one mission at a time. And so when I gave my State of the Coast Guard address, I alluded to the fact that we're, we're semper paratus for a best case world, a somewhat static world. But when you start throwing in some of these other complexities, it's very hard to say that we are semper paratus for those contingencies because we don't have a force and garrison. Uh, and our reserve component today is the smallest it's been since the Korean War. Uh, and, and that is my cavalry, if you will, and they do a great job at it. But we're, uh, we're not a Coast Guard man to the level to meet some of these contingencies. What does the future hold for the U.S. Coast Guard? We will ask Admiral Paul Zekoft, Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. We bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Admiral Paul Zekompt, 25th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So there's a constant struggle to achieve a proper balance between the demands of today's mission while at the same time planning to effectively meet tomorrow's strategic and operational requirements. If you received a blank check for something to spend money on and future needs in the future, so five, ten years down the road, what do you think those future technologies are that you would like to invest in for the United States Coast Guard? Uh, some of it's high-tech, some of it's low-tech, Don. Um, on the low-tech side, uh, we have about a billion-dollar backlog in our shore infrastructure. Some of this is housing. We don't have enough child care facilities for, for our folks. I say, well, that's pretty low-tech stuff. Well, I have search and rescue stations right now where those crews, if they're not out doing search and rescue, they're literally out there pounding shingles into the roof to keep 100-year-old infrastructure watertight. Yeah, you know, we need to demonstrate to our people that you know quality of life is an important aspect as well. When it comes to leveraging technology, don't go it alone. You know, work across, in our case, the Department of Homeland Securities. So if, say, for example, we're looking for the state-of-an-art sensor that we want to put in an airplane, well, we want to make sure it's the same sensor that maybe the Air Force is looking at or maybe the Navy for submarines or maybe the CBP. But don't go it alone when it comes to technology. We did that early on with unmanned systems. And we spent a lot of money looking at a helicopter-like device that would launch off one of our – but we were the only ones in that 
product line at the time. And there were a lot of vendors that couldn't deliver. And finally, we said, okay, let's back away from this. Let's let the Navy do their study. Uh, we'll put some people on their staff, study this maritime technology, and then maybe we go in together. And then there's economies of scale because recognizing that technology, again, going back to Moore's Law, uh, through our acquisition streams, by the time you field it, there's a good, good likelihood it may be obsolete. So I think in that case, all the more reason to harness you know, the, the best of all. Uh, I spent a lot of time with the think tanks, but more importantly, our, our national labs, Lincoln Labs, Sandia Labs, a number of others. What technologies are they looking at? Who else is interested? And then we use a whole-of-government approach of how do we leverage these technologies for the schoolhouse, for the maintenance, when we ultimately field these new technologies. But to say, what is that holy grail of technology that's out there? I can't tell you what that is. That's why I said the smartest person in the Coast Guard does not sit behind my desk. Well, I'm going to keep with the future. So, um, you know, decades from now, maybe a decade or so, what is the Coast Guard fleet going to look like? And what are some of the key drivers shaping that vision? And then how, are you, how does collaboration and partnership make you realize that vision? We're already starting to see some of that right now, Michael. And, you know, I have uh, 22 folks over in, the, uh, in Saudi Arabia right now um, that, that are trying to model themselves after the United States Coast Guard as they look at their maritime equities that are significant. Uh, we were, uh, yeah, we're in, I say, seven continents. But when I was at the last International Sea Power Symposium uh, with over 100 maritime nations there, uh, almost each and every one of them, when you say, what is your number one maritime threat? It's really about maritime security. Uh, it's about smuggling. Uh, look at the refugee crisis right now. That That is really no end in sight in the Aegean and Mediterranean seas. The human trafficking, uh, the all of the other illicit activity maritime. So much of this is very Coast Guard-like in terms of what the, you know, the tier two and especially the tier three nations of the world who want can't afford a navy. And heck, why would you want? We have the best navy in the world. And we always will be in that regard. But many of the the, the near-term threats that many of the maritime nations see are Coast Guard-like. And so I see the Coast Guard as being the global model, if you will, for maritime governance. Our people are great ambassadors in that regard as well. And it goes back to Alexander Hamilton. Uh, and I always read this quote uh, It says, you know, be mindful that we are a nation of free men uh, who are impatient of rude and haughty behavior. So when we're involved in, say, maritime law enforcement, we don't come out there with gun blazing. You know, we use the minimal force necessary to compel compliance. We're actually humanitarian, if you will, uh, in the conduct of our law enforcement operations. And let's face it, there's a lot of scrutiny drawn on any law enforcement mm -hmm. in what may be perceived as heavy-handed operations. We've become the global model for maritime security, maritime law enforcement. So I see our role as an instrument of diplomacy growing, especially with maritime, uh, and certainly with a more modernized fleet with the capability to go further. Uh, today, I have to say no the other request of can we send Coast Guard cutters to the Mediterranean and help the European Union with their crisis? Do we send Coast Guard cutters to the East and South China Sea to counterbalance some of the aspirations of China in particular with extraterritorial claims? All of those involve an opportunity cost. If I do that, then I can't do this. And what I can't do this is 
protecting the Florida Straits, the drug transit zones, um, but our authorities certainly resonate over there. And we have a very open relationship with the China Coast Guard as well. So I see our role as a global leader growing in the next 10 years. Our, our capability and capacity will grow at the same time. And we are that unique instrument of diplomacy as an armed service uh, of the United States. So, Admiral, uh, what advice would you give someone who is thinking about a career in public service and perhaps becoming a Coast Guardsman? I would go down to the waterfront first uh, and, and talk to one of our junior most people and ask them why they joined the Coast Guard. That's the first start. And then then the experience becomes a almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and I'll just share with you a, a sea story. Uh, I was the captain of a patrol boat during the Marielle boat lift back in uh, 1980. Now, I was the second youngest crew member uh, among a crew of 16 on this 95-foot patrol boat. So it wasn't like I was an old salt. <laughs> but you're still ultimately responsible. And we're, we're running this barrier patrol off the Florida Keys. Nothing's happening. Uh, we didn't have intelligence on anything. But I just instinctively said, well, we know they're leaving from Marielle. So let's just head off in that direction and maybe we'll stumble on something. Well, about 70 miles later, we stumble on a, a boat no longer than 45 feet long with 200 people on it. And we came along shore, uh, alongside, I mean, and the parents are throwing their babies, you know, eight, 10 months old at my crew. Uh, and we're catching them like hay bales um, because they knew their boat was going to sink, but they at least wanted their, their infants to arrive in the United States and have a better life. Uh, we saved all 200 people. And from that point on, I said, I don't know why, but I was there at the right time, right place. And it always sends a chill up my spine every time I think of that moment, what my crew did. Uh, but the fact that these are 200 people that probably would have perished otherwise if we weren't there at the right place, right time. No explanation for it. But from that point on, Boy, was I hooked. Well, sir, thank you for coming in and spending some time with us today. It's a wonderful conversation. But more importantly, Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Well, I'm just Absolutely. delighted that this country has allowed me to – this month I'll trip over my 39th year of active duty service. And if someone were to say 39 years ago that you would still be on active duty 39 years from now, I would say you better submit to a urinalysis because that <laughs> cannot be true. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Admiral Paul Zeekoft, 25th Commandant of the U.S. Coast Guard. My co-host from IBM has been Don Fenhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. And thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the strategic priorities of the USDA's Food and Inspection Service? How is FSIS ensuring this country's food is safe and uncontaminated? How is FSIS leveraging technology and innovation to meet its mission? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and much more with Alfred Almanza, Deputy Undersecretary for Food Safety at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.